Welcome to the Purpose and Principles podcast. My guests today, and I'm delighted to say it's two guests, we have Michael and Katie Stollard, and they are partners in business. I would say partners in crime, but that doesn't sound right. It's partners in business. (laughs) And they are the Connection Culture Group leadership training consulting firm based in Greenwich, Connecticut. Their clients include Costco, Memorial Sloan, Kettering Cancer Center, the NASA Johnson Space Center, Qualcomm, U.S. Air Force, and so many other amazing, incredible clients. I had the opportunity to connect with Michael many, many years ago, at least a a decade now, reading his, his piece on connection and connection culture, and I've always really enjoyed this content. To hear that you're re-releasing the book got me super excited. Mike and Katie, welcome to the show. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you, Max. Thanks, Max. Nice to be with you. Mm-hmm. I I love it. And reading the book again was just, it brought smile to my face again. And it does it over and over again. You know, we all seem to know that connecting is important. But, you know, you have some new research. What is the new research talking to us about? And that it clearly shows this isn't just a nice to have. Mm-hmm. Can you just help me understand and, and get it right to our leaders about why connecting uh, and to our listeners, why is connecting so, so critical? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, the new research shows that you know you can break it down, Max, into how it affects individuals mm-hmm. and how it affects organizations. And the research shows that it makes individuals smarter, happier, more productive, more resilient to cope with stress. And disconnection really sabotages our. When you look deeper into how our body works, when we're uh, short-term stressors are called acute stressors, mm-hmm. where it's a you know where maybe somebody attacks us, then we have to respond to that. But a, a long-term stress is a chronic stressor, and that's what we're seeing a lot of in society today. That people are under long-term stress, so their body gets stuck in the state called stress response, mm-hmm. where blood glucose and oxygen are allocated to the fight or flight systems, but they're short changed in terms of their allocation to other parts of the body. The uh, part of the brain where uh, memory resides called the hippocampus, the digestive system, the immune system, the reproductive system. When that happens, we don't feel well and we don't understand why. Mm-hmm. We don't really make the connection that we're, we're lonely and stressed. And so we often turn to uh, addictive behaviors or substances to manage our emotions and our energy. Mm. And then over time, that's very unhealthy. And the research shows it has an effect on our lifespan. So that's one of the things we've learned in recent years, just how the body responds to loneliness and stress mm-hmm. and social isolation. And we've also learned about how connection helps organizations. And it, it conveys a whole number of benefits, including higher employee engagement. You know, not only are your employees healthier, smarter, happier, more productive, and that's a benefit in itself. They also give greater effort, higher employee engagement. They align their behavior with the organization's goals or what we call strategic alignment. They communicate more. That improves the quality of decisions. They engage in um, creative conversations that fuel innovation, and they're more adaptive and agile to adjust to the external environment. So, a lot of benefits that convey a performance and competitive advantage. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's incredible to me that anyone after learning the amount of, bo- the, well, the body of research that you support and that you share frequently and regularly to me is so compelling that I don't know how people could ignore it anymore and that people could say, well, you know, okay, that sounds nice for someone else. 
it, it's, it just doesn't work. Yeah, it's, um, and that was the big thing for me, Max, because I, so I worked early in my career in technology and then I moved to Wall Street mm -hmm. and we live in Connecticut, but I was working in Midtown Manhattan, which is about a 45 minute train ride. And with the hours I was working and just the stress of trying to make some impossible mergers work, um, it, it crowded out time for family and friends and relationships. And I was around people all the time, Max, but I didn't know that I didn't have deeper connections. You know, Katie was busy taking care of our daughters. And uh, even when I was home, I was thinking about my work because I, I didn't want to let my bosses down. You know, I, I wanted to figure out how to make these crack the code on these things. And um, quite honestly, in some cases, they were civil wars that broke out in these merging firms. And um, I just didn't feel well. I started developing some you know, addictions. I needed more caffeine in the morning. I had to break away and just do like an intense run to rev my body up to get through the rest of the afternoon. I needed more alcohol at night to slow me down. And that's a typical pattern, except it could be drugs. It could be addiction to sex or porn or shopping, or even uh, getting a tan can become addictive. There are a whole bunch of things that are not healthy if they become addictions. Mm. And that's you know, more than half of Americans today have an, one or more addictions that has serious negative uh, health consequences for them. It, it, it's, it's stunning to me to think that what we could be experiencing today, particularly as you re-release re the book now during a global pandemic, uh, what do you both think about this right now in terms of what we're currently dealing with? It's quite unprecedented at a global scale, particularly for what we're in our lifetimes. Right. So we have this uh, convergence of factors going on in 2020 and what a crazy year we are all having. How many stress points can we all yes. take on at once? Right. So we have, uh, we came into 2020 with a loneliness epidemic, mm -hmm. which has been talked about for a number mm -hmm. of years. And Cigna has done, um, the insurance company has done studies on this and their most recent research that they released in 2020, which was you know, based on respondents in 2019, uh, showed that 61% of American adults, so ages 18 and up, mm -hmm. self-reported as lonely. That's three out of five people. Mm -hmm. And the thing about loneliness is that we can be pretty good at hiding that. Mm -hmm. um, and as Mike had mentioned, you can be around people all day long and have nice relationships with people, but still feel lonely. Yes. Like you're not seen, you're not heard, you're not appreciated. Um, so we came in with a loneliness epi epidemic. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we have just the various stresses of um, the, the political climate, all the, you know, the social unrest, the big topics that are coming to the front for all of us to try to wrestle with together and uh, COVID-19. Yeah. So here in a year when we, we need to be moving toward one another in really great connection, the pandemic in order for us to be healthy has required us to be physically apart. Mm -hmm. So we need connection, but we have to stay apart. Mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. that, that presents a great challenge. And, oops. Hold on a second, please. Yep. There we go. It's one of our daughters <laughs> calling us to connect with us from far away. So we're, we're all for that. And we'll call That's her back. Okay. Uh, so, uh, all right. I've, 
I've lost my train of thought here in all of that. Just this funny well, with not COVID, funny, right? Con convergence, right? Yep. So, um, all right. Do you remember what your original question was? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Really, what, <laughs> really what, how do we how do we handle this this need for connection yes. in a in a time of COVID? Because it's very very stressful for a lot of us, right? Yes. I mean, it is just extremely stressful. It's exacerbated the loneliness in many cases. Yes, it has. We hear about domestic violence. We hear about yes. suicide rates and a lot of other things that we're really very are very real, and yet people don't seem to be talking about as much in this entire scheme of, of, of what's happening today. Right. Well, when we, um, we have had the opportunity to interact with um, college students mm -hmm. and do some uh, to guest lecture in some classes. And we say to them, uh, you know, it's the natural, a natural response is to pull away mm -hmm. and to kind of, you know, be on your own and just worry. And, but really we need to figure out how to move toward one another mm. into connection. And unfortunately um, we, we can't necessarily easily do that together, but we have to figure out how to virtually connect in a way that fills us back up. And some of this um, is going to be maybe stepping into being a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more open with how we are feeling and the emotions that we are um, wrestling with and to be there for one another, to support one another. And one of the fascinating things about how our bodies work is that talking things out with someone uh, really does matter. And I'm going to throw it to Mike to explain what's going on in our brains, Mike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things we're saying a lot these days to people, because there's people are struggling with anxiety mm -hmm. and what the advice we give them is never worry alone. Mm. And here's why, because when you worry alone, your brain engages in the amygdala where we process threats and it actually disconnects the cortex where we make rational decisions. So we, we, it, our thinking becomes foggy. It's not as clear. And when we reach out to someone just as a sounding board, they don't even have to give us advice. They just need to be good listeners. And we talk it out. That actually has the effect of disengaging the cortex. So we feel, I'm sorry, disengaging the amygdala. So we feel better, Max. Mm -hmm. And second, engaging the cortex. So we make a better decision. Yes. It's a simple thing, but it works. Yeah. And, and, you know, research supports it. It's an evidence-based practice. And I think that's one of the biggest skills that we as leaders need to learn is how do we ask better questions and then listen, simply listen. Right. Yes. And I think there has been um, this notion that this is your work life and this is your personal life. Mm -hmm. You walk in the doors to work or you open up your screen to now be working virtually and you have to put your personal life aside mm -hmm. and we're only talking about work. But that um, that approach doesn't isn't isn't going to serve us mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. We really can't compart, and we shouldn't compartment compartmentalize mm -hmm. our lives in that way. And I'm going to say it might be more stereotypically a male thing than a female thing mm. to um, be able to put work in one box and personal life in another box. But um, we need to kind of walk with each other mm -hmm. through this year we're having and going forward. And if we see all 
the benefits that connection brings to us, um, that's going to involve kind of being in each other's lives a bit more and showing a personal interest, being willing to say, uh, I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes really asking, how are you, Max? Right. And how can I help you? You know, Katie, what can I do to make things easier for you? It, 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 I love that. And it's interesting because I was recently speaking with a, another guest who said, for years, a lot of our senior leaders, including our CEOs, haven't had an opportunity to go home and enjoy dinner with their families. Uh-huh. And now they are. And so that is prompting new conversations with family members that perhaps they haven't had in the past in some ways, maybe this pandemic has shaken our roots a little bit in our busyness. I know at the you know when it first started, I don't know how it felt for you guys, but when it first started, we all had to shelter in place in March. And there was a couple of weeks where we really had pockets of days where we had nothing because we couldn't reach out to our clients. We couldn't we couldn't do anything. We just had to be, you know, super respectful of it. There was a space of time. I've now figured out how to fill up every single minute again. <laughs> Sadly, I've, I've figured out how to figure it all out. We fill it all up again, and we're very busy again. What can we do to be very intentional about connecting with people? And I think, Katie, you just mentioned a few of those, you know, with the few questions that we really need to ask and to really engage with people. What, what do we do? How do we, allow, how, do, how do we do this differently? I know in the book, for instance, you write, you know, if a leader is so focused is on seeing that tasks are simply accomplished, then success will really be unsustainable. You, you, you write specifically leaders must create an environment where people can thrive and thriving means connecting. Mm-hmm. They have to connect. Yeah. There's, there's so much that leaders can do. You know, we talked about never worrying alone and making sure that people they're responsible for leading and the people they care about in life are aware of that too, because a lot of us are not aware of that. (laughs) So we do worry alone. And, um, you know, even in the last 24 hours, I've broken that rule. (laughs) So even though I know better, um, but I didn't want to wake Katie up. So (laughs) it was in the middle of the night. I started thinking, Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And um, so another thing we're telling people right now is, and of course in our, in our book, we go a lot deeper. We've been studying this for almost 20 years. So We've really gathered from a wide variety of organizations and leaders how they cultivate connection cultures and how they connect. Um, but you know, I, I want to not overwhelm people and just share a couple of really practical things. We already shared never worry alone. Another one that's really helpful to know, and I take this phrase from one of my mentors, Francis Hesselbein, who has a birthday coming up pretty soon here. Mm. And um, Francis. Uh, she always says, in fact, this is her Twitter handle, to serve is to live. Mm. And the research shows that is true, that when we are focused on helping others, it produces uh, a response in us called helpers high. Mm. And we actually feel better. So looking for ways to serve our colleagues, to help, um, you know, to reach out people to people responsible for leading and say, you know, how can I help? Mm-hmm. Um how are you, how are you doing? You know, is there anything I can do to help you achieve your career goals? And what are you thinking about in the future for your career? And how can we maybe create some projects that will help you advance uh, in developing skills that will, you know, put you further along in um, 
making you more, you know, helping you move along the path that you hope to go in the future. So to serve is to live. And then another simple practice that people can put in place that will help them right now with anxiety and depression is, um, you know, count your blessings, which is gratitude. And just taking the time each day to pause. Some people like to write this down, which I think is helpful. I tend to just pause and think about it, but just, you know, naming three things you're grateful for. It could be, you know, I'm grateful for Katie and just, you know, what uh, my beloved Katie, I'm always, she's always on that list of three, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then it could be something simple as good coffee on a cold morning <laughs> or chocolate every uh, day. <laughs> one of my, one of my, one of my favorite performers, Rob Mathis, uh, you know, a really brilliant musician or Lynn manuel Miranda's story that we have in the book. Um, has really been an inspiration. We're going to a thing online with the crew, uh, uh, the company of uh, Hamilton that we'll be on tonight. We're excited about. So anyway, those are just a few things that are really practical and simple that people can put in place now that will help them. And if they share those with the people they lead and the people they care about, it'll help them as well. Yeah. And and here's the interesting thing for me. I have some of our leaders out there, they listen and they say, you know, that makes sense, but I just don't have time to go out and ask everyone, you know, about their day. And I don't have time because it's going to just lead a big list of things that I have to do afterwards. Now, some might, you know, in all fairness, I, I see some that are doing good one-on-ones and they're getting better in their one-on-ones. But some of these questions that you're bringing up and 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 I bring up pretty regularly as well, I'm I'm with you what is the bigger struggle that people are, what's preventing them from doing this? Because these questions might seem simplistic, but they're extremely powerful. And what you mm-hmm. just said is so important for people. I, I just hope it doesn't get lost. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it, you know, the first step we lay out yeah. in a five-step process to operationalize a connection culture is to develop a connection mindset. Mm-hmm. And that means really, you know, we tried to do that with the book that we really lay out to help people understand some of the science to, un, you know, and uh, help them come to believe and develop a mindset that connection is a superpower. Mm-hmm. So it is irrational not to be intentional about taking the time to connect because it's going to help you perform your tasks that much better. Mm-hmm. So if you just take, 10% of your time and allocate it to connection, the remaining 90% of your time you allocate to tasks, you're going to be more productive. You're going to be more creative. You're going to be more rational. You're, you're, you're just going to accomplish so much more and you'll do better work as a result of that. So it's really irrational not to be intentional about connection, but people have to be convinced of that. Yes. That's step one. Okay. I'm going to jump in on something. Yeah, please. Uh, I get that the to-do list never ends <laughs> and you can you can start your day and think i've got to get 20 things done today and if people keep interrupting me or i have to go around and say hello and be nice to everybody this is going to really slow me down mm-hmm. i don't have time for this what's the point well here is the point if your only interactions with the people you're responsible for leading are why haven't I gotten that report? Uh, you know, if you're if you're if they only interact with you when you are uh, micromanaging or you are uh, just the way that you're behaving toward them is very task. Mm-hmm. I only care about your work product. I don't actually care about you. However, you if you however you word that or 
or your lack of saying anything mm-hmm. nice to them, um, then that behavior affects how connected or not they feel to you. Yeah. So if you are operating in, if you're creating a culture of indifference mm-hmm. where people can tell that you don't really care about them as a person, or you're creating a, a culture of control when uh, you are bossing them around and, and only after them about their work, then they're not going to do their best work. Mm-hmm. They're maybe going to stop participating as much. They're going to stop bringing mm-hmm. in- information to you that you might need. And all those things are actually going to negatively impact the work that's being done. It will slow productivity down, or yeah. it may even sabotage things. So if a leader can get it into his or her head that having strong relationships, having collaborative relationships, having this feeling of connection actually eases the path, smooths the path, allows people to like pick up the phone and call somebody in accounting. I need this answer or, you know, some other Mm -hmm. department. It actually helps um, in the productivity, then maybe they'll take it more seriously. And, and you mentioned there, you know, the three different cultures you describe in the book, right, of indifference, right. control, and connection. And right. then there's some really nice examples in the book of those who've actually demonstrated a really great connection culture. Can mm-hmm. you speak to a couple of those examples for us around what stood out for you when it comes to a connection culture? And I, I just, I, either one of you, I just, I, whatever, whatever you think in terms of like an, a story that illustrates for me uh, a good connection culture and why that's so important. And then I'd like to make this a little bit more personal in your own experience in hospitals and and how that connection culture was so important in your own lives as well. Okay. Well, maybe we'll both do this one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what we could do is combine it into one example. That's yeah. healthcare. Okay. And so um, Katie was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2000, late 2003. Mm-hmm. And no, I'm sorry. Uh, in 2003, and then she about a year late. Oh well. Okay. <laughs> anyway, in uh, late 2003, with advanced ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. and um, you know that's when the signs started coming up. Mm-hmm. And so her chances of survival at that time, given those two cancers, um, was less than 10% that she would survive for more than five years. And our daughters were just 12 and 10, so. You can imagine that was a time where there was some stress and anxiety and at times for me, even depression, I would say, just worrying about Katie. Mm -hmm. And we uh, had tremendous uh, support from our family and friends and our healthcare professionals that we met at Yale New Haven, uh, which is Greenwich Hospital locally as part of the Yale New Haven system, which is one of our clients and at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So uh, Katie's initial treatments, all of her treatments for the first breast cancer were at uh, Greenwich Hospital. The uh, treatments, initial treatments, including surgery, uh, the primary surgery uh, for ovarian cancer was at Greenwich Hospital also. Mm-hmm. And then we knew we had to be aggressive in this. So we, we went to Sloan Kettering to explore further treatment and on one of our visits there, we're walking down the street toward the entrance in Manhattan. And this doorman locks his eyes on Katie 
And he, Nick Medley is his name, by the way, in case Nick is listening. And he locks his eyes on Katie and smiles, you know, and this is in Midtown Manhattan where nobody makes eye contact. And, um, oh my gosh, sorry about that. You want to back up a little bit and talk yeah. about, take it from walking down the sidewalk? Yeah, so we're, we're walking and, and yeah. okay. oh, okay, sorry. Let okay. me come back. Okay. So we're, let me just see. I thought I had this turned off. I don't get why this is happening. Uh, that is really strange. This is supposed to be forwarding. So <laughs> I wonder if I just turn it off. You think that would do it? I've never had that happen before when I have it forwarding. You're popular. Uh, I well, that's so. just really strange. Um, I love your okay, story so, starting at like Nick Medley even, just you yes. know, to Nick Medley walking. right there, walking yeah. in. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so we, Nick locks his eyes on Katie, smiles, greets her like a returning friend in a town where nobody makes eye contact. And we meet Nick, we walk into the reception area, a receptionist is calling everyone honey, which is also very unusual. And the security people, the administrative people were helpful and friendly. Our oncologist, Dr. Marty Hensley, spent an hour with us. She was upbeat and optimistic. She educated us about treatment options and answered our long list of questions. And by the end of the day, I, my reaction was, number one, I had done the research. I knew this is one of the best teams in the world to treat ovarian cancer. Yeah. You know, they're published. They're saying people from all around the world are coming to them because of their reputation. And I also, I had a second reaction, Max, that I didn't expect. And that was, I felt they cared. They really cared. And the impact on me was, number one, it calmed my nerves. And when I was walking down the street toward the entrance, I probably had a cloud over my head because I expected it was going to be a culture of death and dying, but I found it was a culture of life and living. Mm. And um, I, I, I felt calmer and I felt optimistic that we could get Katie through this despite the long odds. And this year we celebrated Katie's 16th year of being cancer-free from advanced ovarian cancer. And now she's a three-time cancer survivor and Sloan Kettering is one of our clients. We love them. And we just talked to another cancer center in the West Coast this afternoon uh, about doing some work. So we really, um, uh, it, it's, it's been a journey, just that those relationships we have at Sloan Kettering, at Yale New Haven, um, you know, many of them are friends now and there are healthcare professionals and it, uh, it, it helps us flourish and helps us heal. Mm -hmm. So um, when you look at Sloan Kettering's culture, just to describe a connection culture, their vision, you know, we boil it down to vision value voice. Their vision is to provide the best cancer care anywhere. Mm -hmm. They're the oldest private cancer center in the world, and they're consistently rated one or two in the U.S. over the past, I don't know, 25 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, second, they value people. You just see that in the way they interact. I remember I, I came out of a gift shop one time when Katie was having treatments there. And I just uh, saw that Nick and a, the doorman and a bunch of people were gathered and they were talking about the re uh, response to an employee engagement survey or employee satisfaction survey. And I just stood there. They didn't pay attention to me. I just listened. And I heard people say, you know, we love our mission to provide the best cancer care anywhere. We love our patients and their caregivers. And we love the people we work with. And that's why we're so fired up about working here. And you just see that the, the they value one another. They value their patients. 
and um, their, uh, you know, just the fact that they sought their employees' voice and their experience as employees shows that they're giving them a voice. So you have vision, value, voice there. Um, that's a, a brief example. You know, we've we see this in business, government, healthcare, higher education. When leaders communicate an inspiring vision that unites people, when they care about them as individuals and don't treat them as means to an end, and when they give them a voice to share their ideas and opinions, and then those ideas and opinions are considered when possible, people feel connected yeah. and that helps them thrive. Yeah. And if we want people to improve, we have to help them know that their voice matters. Katie, how did it feel when you got that big smile going into that doorway? knowing you're about to be treated for a very serious cancer. Ooh, you know, I'm so used to hearing it from Mike's perspective. Mm -hmm. I, um, well, I, I think it probably felt very warm and inviting. Mm -hmm. And the thing about Nick, shout out to Nick, um, every time I go to that building, that location for Sloan Kettering, I look for Nick, I stop, I get in line behind the other people who are waiting for wow. him and, and he pulls me into his arms and he gives me a big hug and he looks me in the eye and he says, I'm, you know, I'm so proud of you. You're doing great, you know, and just, it's all this affirmation and all this positive, um, this coming from him, you know, to be seen, is so important mm. to be acknowledged as an individual is so important. And Nick is doing this for all the people who are coming in and um, consistently. So, you know, 15, 16 years later, I am still interacting with Nick. Wow. He's made that kind of impression on us. And let me say, he was in one of our workshops recently. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like a star at Sun Kettering. It's like yeah. everybody wanted his autograph, you know? <laughs> I want his autograph. I want to come meet him. Well, you exactly. should, uh, if you Google uh, hugger and healer, the video will come up. ABC news did a piece on him. Wow. It's really heartwarming. It's an inspiring hugger and healer. We'll put it in the show. Hugger notes. and healer. Yeah. yeah, there you go. So one of the fun things about the uh, greatly expanded and updated second edition of the book, which came out in September, uh, the book connection culture uh, is that we, we broadened the diversity of leaders and companies mm -hmm. and stories uh, because as people, you know, we're curious, mm -hmm. how does somebody else do a connection culture? That's right. What, what do they do to show they value people as unique and uh, in individuals? How, how do they give people a voice in a way that feels connecting? Um, so we've got you know, stories, um, we open up with a story about Lin-Manuel Miranda and Tommy Kale, you know, the creative team that birthed this award-winning, um, Broadway-changing um, phenomenon mm. that is Hamilton, the musical. And, you know, what is it about Lin-Manuel? What is it about how they work together that really brought out the best of each of them and created something new? Mm -hmm. um, we have examples of... Um, German Chancellor Angela Merkel kind of getting into her life story and experiences that she had that you can now see how they impact the way she leads. 
Um, Trisha Griffith is another woman leader in the book who leads progressive insurance. We have things from healthcare and government. Steph Curry, mm-hmm. basketball player. Mm-hmm. What can we learn from Steph mm-hmm. about how to connect with people? So that's mm-hmm. that's really fun. I think even though it may not be the industry that you are in as mm-hmm. the reader, there are very applicable mm-hmm. practices. Um, and we have lots of things that kind of stir your own thinking about what is it that I need yeah. as an employee and what should I be doing for other people, my peers and for those I'm leading. And I can see that Mike would like to add something. Mm. Oh, I, I, and I also, <laughs> one of my favorite stories, you know, we, we have some celebrities that people, you know, Lynn manuel he's like a super, super celebrity these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have some people that I'm sure readers have not heard of, mm-hmm. like Maureen Bisignano, who led the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. And oh my gosh, she created this, you know, she and Don Berwick, who's, you know, a legend in healthcare, they created this phenomenal culture of connection at this, uh, at this firm that has a huge impact on healthcare consulting worldwide. And, you know, I, I hope, uh, I think readers will, when they read some of these stories, they're going to discover some people who really will inspire them. And I think our book is timely in that sense is it's a very positive and upbeat book at a time that's difficult. And I'm up to, I think we could go through some difficult times here in the months ahead, but I am optimistic that next year that, you know, good, there are good things ahead. I think we could see people in aggregate experience post-traumatic growth where they value connection more Mm. and that could lead to some, you know, a real renaissance in productivity and uh, well-being. So that that's my hope. And the book is very positive and uplifting by focusing on these leaders and influencers who have cultivated cultures that really bring out the best in people. Well, I love that, and I'm grateful that you that you re-released with all these new stories, all these great examples out there that, like you said, some that are well-known, others that are not, but that people can be inspired by the mm-hmm. fact that when we build these relationships, it really matters. One of the words I want to capture here, and I know I want to be thoughtful of your time and, and to our listeners, you know, we find that most of our podcasts, we find that people, if they're running, they'll listen to the full podcast, but if we exceed their running time, we miss them. <laughs> So so we'll try to stay within a listener's uh, good time here, but relationship excellence as opposed to just task excellence. And I think that's what, I, I love your, 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 your thought here about that there's this resurgence or that as we come out of this, there will be this, this rekindling, this reappreciation for how important relationships and connection really are. And that as leaders, we have a responsibility towards relationship excellence and not just task excellence. Thank you for that distinction. I really enjoyed reading that in the book this time as well. Yeah, thanks, Max. With, that's, what, that's what we found, that the best leaders, you know, all leaders are focused on tasks and results because that's what we get paid to do. Mm-hmm. But the best leaders, the Lin-Manuel Miranda's, the Admiral Vern Clark, who had a huge impact on the U.S. Navy. Um, the Steph Currys, mm-hmm. Howard they, Bihar. yeah, Howard Bihar, the you know who they who's been called the soul of Starbucks. Um, they were they attended to tasks, mm-hmm. and they're they're extremely competent and successful at what they do. But they also are intentional about developing relationships. Mm-hmm. 
And that, it just inspires people to see that combination. They have competence, they have character, they bring out the best in people, they're focused on others. You know, the word servant leadership is used a lot. And, you know, they, they focus on tasks because they serve a cause too. They believe in the work that they're doing and they, they care about the people. And that combination really just, it's, uh, you know, it's explosive in terms of the impact it has on productivity, innovation, and performance. Mm-hmm. So, but you have to have both. The leaders who just focus on tasks and results, um, they won't achieve that. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. And I really appreciate, I, I'm just so grateful for this conversation today that we could celebrate with both of you 16 oh, years you. and that we can thank celebrate you. this. I, I, I celebrate with you. I wish our, our, our listeners could actually see the interaction. I get to enjoy watching the both of oh, you interact okay. with one another. Um, okay. they, they won't get to see that, but to describe it, I hope that they get a sense of the way that you talk about one another, the way you treat one another. I, mm. I'm grateful for this opportunity to, to have you both on this show today and to be able to share why this is so important. If you were to summarize what you hope people would remember from this conversation today, what would you want them to remember from this, from this episode? Oh, Mike looks at me. Okay. I'm formulating. I, I don't yeah. have my, my pithy statement together. Right. But Let me go first. Um, and then you can go. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say, <laughs> oh, okay. go ahead. no, no. I mean, you're, you're going to take it, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's really how very much connection matters. And it's all about the way we treat one another uh, with respect and recognizing the inherent value in each person and wanting to champion each other. Uh, this is going on too long, but and it's not about the quantity of your relationships or how extroverted and how, you know, you don't have to be this super connector. It's really about the quality and uh, allowing yourself to kind of do life with other people. Okay, Mike, what were you gonna say? Well, you know, only connect. It's just connect, connection brings joy. And then just to get back to those points we made earlier, never worry alone. To serve is to live and count your blessings. If you do those things every day, that, that will help you get through this difficult season we have. And we'll probably have for the next few months and maybe into early next year. But I think things are going to get better after that. I'm optimistic. Never, never worry alone. To serve is to live and count your blessings. That's it. I appreciate it. Where can people find more information about you and the book? Uh, they can go to connectionculture.com. Mm-hmm. That's our company site. And then I have a blog, michaelleestollard.com. Thank you, Max. It is a pleasure. Thank you yeah, both. Thank you, it's our pleasure. Thank you we both. We enjoyed chatting. Let's do it again. I love it. I love <laughs> it. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. And to all our listeners out there, as I do every week, I thank you for being here. I love these conversations. I'm grateful for good work that we get to share. And I I encourage all of our listeners out there to be safe, be wise, and have a great week. 